So if you have a Bible or a device, <laughs> still trying to get used to that, uh, open it to the book of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. If you've just joined us, we're looking at this, uh, sort of using the metaphor of, of Mount Everest being uh, Romans chapter 8, the Himalayas being the tallest mountain range in the world, uh, Mount Everest being the tallest mountain, the, the roof of the world, and, 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 and looking at that metaphorically for Romans chapter 8, because it truly is. It's the roof of the New Testament. It is just a, a fabulous, wonderful, deeply instructive book, not just on doctrine. Yeah, there's a pile of doctrine there, but on what it is to live the life that we've been called to live as Christians. So we've been looking at six, uh, talking about, again, using the metaphor, going up the mountain six times. We, 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 last week, we did the second study. That we went up the mountain, and we looked at what it is to be radically changed. And it's the radical transformation which comes about through the working of the Holy Spirit in every true believer. And, and you'll understand why I qualify that as we go along this morning. Uh, there are there is such a thing as make-believers out there. There are people who are steeped in religion that don't know Christ. Uh, I served in California with a guy that he was an elder in our church, but not until after he had served in a church for 20 years as being unsaved. And when God got a hold of him, oh my goodness, what a radical transformation there was. So I uh, talked about that, talked about Mr. Shattuck <laughs> last week, uh, my parents' friend that went from being this, this boozing, drunk, you know, carousing guy to just being, uh, he just blew me away as a 12-year-old kid. Anyway, uh, this time we're going to look at what it is to be sons and daughters. Uh, Paul lays out beautifully the doctrine of adoption. It's a, and yeah, it's a, it's a doctrine, but it's more than that, guys. It's a living reality in our lives to actually be adopted into the family of God, to be in, in, in a very, in a legal sense, but also in a very intimate sense to be adopted as his son, as his daughter, as a result of simply giving our lives to Christ. So as we study the ministry of the Holy Spirit, before I get going on that, just to continue to, to just kind of unpack some things, as we look at the ministry of the Spirit with regard to divine revelation, uh, there's a distinct difference. We've been talking about those who believe, those who have a mindset on the Spirit, those who have a mindset on the flesh. And in those who come to believe, those who are spiritually minded, uh, there are some things that we see that people in the world don't see. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, Paul begins by uh, quoting from Isaiah, the prophet. He says, but as, as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard or have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. You, you hear me pray often, prayed that this morning. Lord, give us ears to hear, a spiritual hearing. Give us eyes to see, spiritual vision. Give us hearts that understand. Because I'll tell you what, folks, it is a supernatural working of God that you can come here and actually understand the things that are being put forth. It's not because of me. It's because the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and drives it into the hearts of the people of God. That's the principle. He says, but God's revealed them to us here, going back into 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. He says, God's revealed them to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God 
except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who's from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. That's why if you have been around me much as far as my teaching goes, uh, I, I sometimes struggle. I think I'm loading too much on because I, I, I want you to understand the full counsel of the Word of God. And certainly you're not going to get that in one Sunday. I mean, that's just not possible. However, Scripture agrees with Scripture. Scripture validates itself. And so as we go through these passages, very often I'll give you companion passages or passages that come to bear uh, in light of the thing that we're looking at here. So, and that's what he means. He's saying comparing spiritual things with spiritual. It's that we look at this and it's not just a myopic view of the word of God. It's a comprehensive view. And, and again, that happens piece by piece. That happens study by study. That happens week by week in my own personal devotions or here or when I'm spending time in God's word in some fashion. Doesn't happen with people in the world. That's why I'll tell you what, you want to get some bad doctrine? Try to get your doctrine from somebody that doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Uh, I've seen it, and it's not good. The point, we're after godly wisdom. We talked about that. We talked about the, the hiking tools that we need to have. We want to have knowledge, and we want that to lead us to understanding that through our knowledge, we begin to understand the things of God. And then as we apply that to our lives... That's godly wisdom. That's the wisdom that Paul talks about here in 1 Corinthians. And it's the wisdom we want to apply as we go through Romans 8. And this is a wisdom that is not just available to those who are scholarly. It's not just available to, you know, people who are high-minded educationally or all of that. No, this is a wisdom that's available to every single human that belongs to Christ. It's part of, it's a central part of the work of the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And he does. And he says, and he will guide you into all truth. This is out of the Gospel of John. And, and then lastly, that he will glorify me. We'll get to that probably next week. We're going to talk about glorification more. Uh, but that's the threefold ministry of the Spirit. So if you understand truth, it's because he's giving it to you. It's because he loves you so much that he wants to reveal himself to you in ever-deepening, ever-increasing ways. And what do we call that? Growth. We want to grow in our relationship with the Lord. So as we get into uh, verses 12 through 17 this morning in chapter 8, I'm going to read through them and then we'll come back and take a look. Uh, Again, talking about the fact that we are adopted into God's family, the, the fact that There are some things that God tells us to stay away from being obligated to, but there are also some things he says, these are obligations that you have. You know, Pastor John, we're under grace. Yeah, we are. And these are graces. You'll understand more as we go. Verse 12, Romans 8. Therefore, brethren, we're debtors, obligated, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. But if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you'll live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption 
by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, means Papa, intimate term. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So as we look at this, we see that he begins this section in in Romans 8 with the fact that we're indebted to God. He says that you're debtors. Uh, And the word debtors here, it, it literally means under obligation. It means you're obligated. And, and, and I mean, that's how it translates. The question becomes, why are we debtors? Why are we indebted to him? And, and remember, there's a flow of thought here. We're not isolating this section. It's part of a whole flow of thought that Paul is laying out as he works his way through uh, the things that he has to say here in what we call chapter eight. It was part of a larger letter that he wrote without chapter and verse divisions. But we do that so that we can organize it and locate it and all that. That's fine. But in verses 5 to 11, we saw that Paul draws a stark contrast uh, between two kinds of life. We looked at that last week. Uh, I'm going to put the chart that we had last week up on the the screen here uh, for you to look at. I'm not going to go through it exhaustively again, but uh, we looked at the fact that to be carnally minded is death. And that's the life which is dominated by the sinful human nature. That's the life that's dominated by that nature of Adam that each of us has. That we're born spiritually dead. As we see here on the left side of this chart, that it's only through the work of the cross, that portion in the middle, that we become spiritually alive. As I mentioned, there are some who would purport to have a relationship with God that don't. And there's great examples in God's word towards that end. Jesus, the, the week, uh, just a couple of days before they put him on the cross, was squaring off against the religious leaders every day in Jerusalem. And, and in Matthew 23, he pronounces seven woes against them. And, and, and I mean, he puts the hammer down with these guys. And, uh, and, and they were absolutely incensed because there was no defense for the things he was saying. One of the things he says, he says, you're like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. What he's saying is you don't get to dress up the carnal man, that guy on the left of this chart. The result is still death. There's a popular saying the last few years, I've heard it more than once. If you put lipstick on a pig, it's still a pig. And what Jesus is saying to these guys is, look, you can dress it up. You can have the outward appearance of being very, very spiritual. Oh, yes, very, very spiritual. And yet be dying on the inside, in the inward man, the inward woman. So in verse 12, he begins verse 12 with the word, therefore, what that is. Again, we've talked about it. And there's a, <laughs> if we, if we backed up for context, uh, in the book of Romans, every time we see it, therefore, we would end up at chapter 1, verse 1. But we don't have time for that, so we're going to just go back one verse. And verse 11 is the reason why the therefore, it's the reason, it's what it's there for. He says in verse 11, we closed with it last week, but it actually hooks the passage that we looked at last week to the passage we're looking at this morning. That's what the therefore is about. He says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your immortal bodies through his spirit 
who dwells in you. He's speaking of our mortal bodies, of our flesh and bone. Literally, that word mortal means bodies that are liable to death. Everything on the right side of that chart is blood-bought. Everything. Immortality, eternal life. They're a sovereign work of God and a sovereign work of His grace. There's not, there's no way that I can do anything to earn that. I, I, I can't merit the things that God freely gives me. Folks, we've got to have that stuck in our heads because from birth, we are taught performance-based acceptance. You know, you do a good job, you get a raise. That's performance-based. Uh, you, <laughs> you, you clean the house for your, your spouse, you get appreciated. That's performance-based. You know, you, you go potty in the toilet as a little kid, you get an M&M. I mean, that's performance. I mean, we're taught that from very, very early on. Think the kingdom of God doesn't operate on that principle at all. Everything that we have is blood-bought. There is no boasting. He says, where is boasting in another place? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, or 4 and 5, I mean, uh, the Apostle Paul says, he says, for we who are in this tent groan. He's talking about our physical bodies, our mortal bodies being burdened because we want to, we, we want to be, uh, we don't want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. There is life beyond this pile of bones that gravity is taking increasing toll on in my life anyway. There is a, there, there's life beyond this. That, and that's the whole point of what he's talking about in Romans 8 here. And it's what he's talking about here in, in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, uh, we groan being burdened. We want mortality to be swallowed up by life. And he says, now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, uh, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So again, another aspect, another facet of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the Spirit is given as a pledge. This word guarantee also, it's the same thing. If you buy a house, you enter into an earnest money agreement. That's a pledge. It's saying, I promise to buy that house. I haven't bought it yet. I haven't put the cash up yet, but that's my intention. The Holy Spirit is a down payment on heaven. The Holy Spirit is a down payment on life itself. The Holy Spirit is why we get to escape what's on the left side of that chart. And now we could live our lives, build our lives around God and live in the fullness of the Spirit now. Not just when we get there. Not just when we throw this this carnal flesh off. The Holy Spirit's a pledge that our bodies will be renewed outwardly. Once we shed this mortal body and we gain our heavenly glorified body, we could go spend time in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Paul does a beautiful job there describing the fact that we will have a new body when we shed this one, when this one dies. But he's also saying that we are renewed inwardly at regeneration when we are born again, that there's a, an inward renewal and, and that our mortal bodies, decaying as they are, are given life. How, do, how, how does that come about? It's by, the, it's by him giving us the Holy Spirit, by receiving, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's with this understanding that Paul writes, verse 12. He says, therefore, on account of what's just been said, we're debtors. 
not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. That's that old nature, that one that we were dominated by before we came to Christ. We've been given a new nature. That old one, yeah, I show on the chart, we keep it chained <laughs> because it's still there. But it has, we are to reckon that to be dead. We are to, it has been positionally brought to a place of being ineffective in our lives. And the only way that that flesh is given reign in our lives is if we elevate it to allowing it to dominate our lives. And that happens to us as Christians, but there's a remedy for that. What he's saying here in verse 12, he's now he's exhorting. Do you guys know what an exhortation is? It means a strong encouragement. It doesn't mean yelling at somebody. <laughs> I'm exhorting you. But it, it, it does mean that, that he's giving a strong encouragement. He's saying, look, take this to heart. It's very similar to when Jesus, if you read in the Gospels, if you read the King James, he says, verily, verily, I say unto you, Truly, truly, I say unto you, usually when Jesus said that, it was pay attention, pay attention. What I've got to say is really important. And that's what he's saying here. This is important. Pay attention. We've got to figure and, and, and realize in our own lives that we are utterly in God's debt. Yeah, look at the cross. I could do nothing. He did it all. Um, Paul's here last week, we looked at the contrast. He contrasts the effects of the mindset on the flesh versus the mindset on the spirit. Uh, He goes on to state the obligations that we now have in light of God's spirit living within us. But he starts, it's interesting. He begins in verse 12 and 13 by telling us what we're not obligated to serve. And I just think it's a very interesting way that he builds this. He's, He's saying that you owe the flesh nothing. You are not under any obligation to that old sinful nature. It produces death. Not my opinion. That's what he says over and over again. It's centered in self-gratification, centered in inordinate desire. That's the flesh. It's the nature of Adam. And it doesn't care about truth. It doesn't care about holiness. It doesn't care about relationships or honesty or moral integrity. It doesn't matter. It's all about me. He's saying, you owe the flesh nothing. It produces nothing but death. Know that, folks. That's why he says here in verse 12, he he says, we're not under obligation. Don't don't give it airtime that it doesn't have, the flesh no longer has authority over you. It is no longer the dominating nature in your life, in your heart. He says in verse 13, he says, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, the word put to, put to death there, it literally means, this comes from the same word as mortal, the same root word, it means mortify. And King James has rendered mortify the deeds of the... It's like, yeah, it's a fancy Bible word, old King James word, but it, it has a powerful meaning. It's not just mental assent. Oh, I don't like that. It is a, it's, a, it's a strong verb. He's saying, look... If, If you identify those things in your life, strangle them, kill them, push them down, get them out of the way, do what you need to do to not go down that road. That's what he means when he says mortify the deeds of the flesh. Don't go there. That would be how we would say it in our vernacular. Put it to death. Understanding that the way of death is living life outside of Christ. He's saying that living according to the flesh, the mortality rate, we look at that, we hear statistics all the time. The mortality rate for that is 
Now, I remember I was thinking about this as I was preparing. Uh, I've mentioned I've taught Romans before. I taught it, the first time I taught was like back in the 1980s. And an example I used to use, I, I had to laugh, I sit at my desk yesterday, was I would say, look, folks, when those thoughts come up, in Second Corinthians chapter 10, he gives a really good uh, teaching on what to do with those inordinate desires, what to do with those temptations. He says, take every thought captive before the throne of Christ. Everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, you take that baby captive. You take that and you give it to him. And I used to use the term, turn the channel. And I literally would do this. And then I remembered, we, don't, we haven't done that for decades. <laughs> we turned the, yeah, we hit the remote now like that. But the, the principle is the same. Take those thoughts captive. Take them, mortify them, get them out of your life, push them out of your mind. Don't go down that road. Don't go there. That's his point. Interesting as we look at this, do you remember Romans 7? We, those of you that were here in that study, Remember how it landed Paul squarely in self-condemnation. Man, oh, wretched man that I am. I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. And he is totally frustrated in his own efforts to try to clean up his own act. It doesn't work. He was experiencing the wretchedness of that corpse. I talked about that corpse that we're chained to, that lower nature. And he was just dragging that thing through and realizing the effects of that, of trying to handle that, to do that on your own. I've heard many times over the years, oh, well, when I get my life together, then I'll come to God. That uh, is a fool's errand. You can never get your life together enough. You can never put yourself in good enough shape to come in your own righteousness. That's what Paul's demonstrating in Romans 7. And I'll tell you what, folks, you know this. You know this. If you have a beating heart and you've given that heart to Christ, you know what he's talking about here. All of us experience this, that inner struggle. I, I, that thing is calling my name and it sounds appealing to me this moment, but I know it'll produce death. I know that nothing good will come. I know that there's wreckage ahead if I go down that road. All of us know that. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live defeated. You don't have to live in the pain of stress and failure. This verse is the answer to what Paul said in Romans 7.25 when he said, who will deliver me? Who will deliver me? I am so filled with despair trying to work this stuff out myself. So, pastor, who will? Passage in Deuteronomy chapter 20, or 33, uh, Deuteronomy 33, 26, that I, I, I absolutely love. Um, back when I was, had my businesses, my, my business partner and his wife rode to Washington, D.C. for a Christian deal. And they took a picture of them on their motorcycle out in the middle of the desert somewhere, and he put this verse down. Uh, it, but he tagged on while my partner is home working. Um, but it says in Deuteronomy 33:26, there is no one like the God, the God of Jeshurun, who rides the heavens to your help and the clouds in his majesty. If you're not aware, the God of Jeshurun, it's a term of endearment. It literally means the upright one or the blessed one. He's saying, and he's been saying all the way back from the very origins of the nation of Israel, I 
want to help you. Jesus called the Holy Spirit. He referred to him as the helper. We've talked about that, folks. In, in, in Romans 7, the whole, the point of all of that is you're not going to be able to do it yourself. You cannot change. I, I do not have the ability. There's no power. And if I try to live by a list of rules, there's no power to fulfill that. The reason the law of Moses failed was that it laid out a standard, but there's no power to fulfill. There's no power to obey because of this fallen nature, this corpse that we deal with. But God, but God rides the heavens to our help. The Bible tells us he's an ever-present help in time of need. By my spirit's power is essentially what the Lord implies here. Put to death the deeds of the body. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to live defeated. You don't have to live in futility. There is power now. And it comes because Jesus went to that cross. And because death couldn't hold him, he rose from the dead with power. And now by coming to simple faith in him, by simply coming to him and saying, Lord, here I am, dented up, screwed up life and all. I give my life to you. I ask you to take it and make something of it because I'm not doing a very good job. And he rides the heavens to our help. The Holy Spirit is a real, not just a doctrinal, but a real person that really does indwell the hearts and lives of God's people. By him were adopted. Verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Implied in that is daughters too. I mean, when the Bible talks about sons, it's talking about humanity. So (laughs) don't get tweaked about it. There's three things that I want to talk about here that sonship is not. I think it's really important because it's very often, I don't want people to draw conclusions that aren't there. So I want to tell you what it's not before we actually get into what it is. He's not referring to here to uh, spectacular instances of uh, divine guidance, perfect obedience, and what I would refer to in the lives of super saints. Folks, I struggle with celebrity Christianity. I think it's absolute nonsense to be straight up with you. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And when I see people who are elevated because they're popular, that's not a godly principle. That you know, he, he, Jesus over and over again illustrated that if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you go low. So sonship is not about being a celebrity. It's not about being famous. It's not about being the really spiritual one. We'll talk about that in a minute. Rather, he's speaking of a daily reality in all of the true sons and daughters of God. This is a daily thing that we are continually dwelling in the place of being his child, his kid in that sense. These are the people that are led by the spirit of God. The second thing is it's not about the degree to which one is yielded to the Holy Spirit. Yeah, there is a difference between someone who is more mature in their walk with the Lord and someone who is less mature, but he's not talking about, and there's a difference between that and being more spiritual and less spiritual. Uh, you don't know. And that's why we don't judge one another in that way. Someone may appear very spiritual and be dying inside. Uh, I remember my boy, Billy, um, <laughs> Not my son by birth, but by choice. Uh, and, and now he's uh, 
the assistant pastor of the church where back in California where I was ordained many years ago. Uh, first time I met him, he was riding on my daughter's back and making sounds like a monkey. And I yelled at him. I said, Billy, get off of her. I said, stop it. You don't have the, that is not okay. Get off of Jessica's back. And he smarted off to me. He's all, yeah, yeah, you are, yeah. And I was like, oh my goodness, this kid. And then I hired him. He worked for me for 15 years or so. And, and, and we would go on long drives together to go work on billboards in different parts of the state and, and all. And, um, and, and we would, he'd say, hey, what about this passage of scripture? And I'd say, you want the short version or the long version? And he'd say, how far are we going? So we're going to Fresno. Okay, that's three hours. Give me the long version. So we would drag out the truck Bible, which is all held together with duct tape, and we would just study the Bible driving down the road. I realized at one point I laughed out loud. I said, Billy, I just learned something. I just realized something about you. Um, he said, what's that, John? And he had come to Christ. And, and in the intervening years, I mean, he was just on fire for the Lord. I said, every one of your childhood stories, almost every one, ends with, and then the cops showed up. <laughs> I was like, I said, have you thought of it? He goes, wow, I never thought about it, but it's true, John. <laughs> My point is this. When Billy came to the Lord, I mean, half of his childhood was spent in the backseat of a, a car because his parents were drug dealers running from one place to the next. And, and, and he was, <laughs> he had no idea what social graces were. He had no idea what spirituality was. He, I mean, he, it was like, but you know, the, the beautiful thing about that is when he came to the Lord, he was a blank slate. And, and I, I was so privileged to be able to, to, and we sharpened one another. Uh, and now, I mean, he's a, a leader in the church and, and just uh, talked to him last week, very loving relationship. Uh, and yet during those early years, somebody could have looked at him and, and looked at him as, well, that guy's 200 feet in the hole. And they were right, but he loved the Lord. And over the next couple of years, now he's grown to the point where now he's a hundred feet in the hole. And that person that's being critical of him because he's socially obtuse, maybe they were 75 feet in the hole and now they're 50. Who's grown more? Who has really, who has grown more in the relationship with the Lord? Folks, this is not about being more spiritual than one another. It's about being yielded to the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He takes us as we are, and he works us in us, and he conforms us to the image of his Son. We'll get into that uh, further in chapter 8. But it's not about the degree to which one is yielded to the Holy Spirit. That's dangerous. It's about a love relationship, which begins at the time of one's conversion, one's salvation. Be careful before you become critical of another. The third thing is being a son or a daughter is not the result of putting to death the deeds of the body, the deeds of the flesh. It's not a result of that. That's getting it backwards. That's getting the cart before the horse. Rather, putting to death the deeds of the body is a result of being a son or a daughter of God. You've got to have that locked into your mind. It's an outflowing. I'll tell you what, folks, our relationship with him, our obedience to him, is a result of the grace that's been poured out on our lives. It's a response to him. It's not something that gets us to him. And as we respond, we grow. The point in all of this is not who we are, but whose we are. Children of the King.
Verse 15, he says, For you didn't receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. I love that, that verse. Uh, I'm going to back up a little bit here, though, because in Romans chapter 8, so far, we've seen two laws, two mindsets, uh, and now Paul's going to give us two spirits. When we look at the two laws, he says the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. We've looked at that. That was on the chart. Uh, the two mindsets, the, the mindset on the flesh is death. The, the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. We've looked at that. And now he says, you didn't receive the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit of bondage. The spirit of bondage, it's a product of legalistic religion. And folks, you ain't going to find that here. <laughs> I will speak against it every time. Again, our lives are a response. Uh, a lot of cults, some Christian groups, denominations and such, they put such an emphasis on rule keeping that they instill fear and a sense of dread in their members. That is just wrong. It presents God as a taskmaster. He's never quite satisfied. I always have a little bit of this niggling doubt inside, like, I'm just never going to measure up. And I might be speaking to you, and, and, and if that's so, then allow the Spirit of God to have his way with you, because it's not, that is not the way of victory in the Christian life. What results in this is, is we look at, at, at the, the the whole principle, the spirit of bondage, is I call it hamster on a wheel theology. <laughs> Have you guys ever looked at a hamster on a wheel? I mean, those things like to run, don't they? They run and 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 they run. And then they run some more and some more and some more. It's like, oh my goodness, it's been going for a half an hour over there in the cage. That's what legalism does. You run a lot and you go absolutely nowhere. God is not impressed and you'll wear yourself out. You'll also be the victim of endless head trips about spirituality and religion. That kind of theology replaces inspiration with perspiration. I lived it. <laughs> I think somebody just understood that. I lived it when I grew up in the LDS church, and I was absolutely liberated from it when I gave my life to Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, we read this. He says, We give thanks to the Father uh, who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance, that's what we're talking about here, of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us, that means carried us, into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Isn't that an awesome verse? How are we conveyed from that life of death? to that life that means something, that life that counts. The spirit of adoption. He conveys us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the son of his love, sons and daughters. You know, there's a, there's a vast difference between the way that sons serve their fathers and masters, or slaves serve their masters. Uh, came up with a bit of a list here. Slaves perform duties. Sons perform acts of love. Slaves dutifully obey. Sons gladly obey. Slaves are motivated by the fear of punishment. Sons are motivated by the love of a relationship. Slaves ask, what is required of me? Sons ask, what can I do 
for you. Folks, it can look the same on the surface. The motivation of the heart could not be more different. Are you a slave? Are you a son? A daughter? The point here is the spirit of adoption changes us from fearful slaves into joyful sons and daughters. That's his point. We're adopted into God's family. We are now called his kid, his child. In Luke chapter 15, I'm going to spend a few minutes on this. Uh, I'm going to have to step on it. (laughs) We're going to wrap up on time. There's a beautiful picture there of what it is to be a son of God or a daughter of God. Uh, And we also see a picture of the contrast that Paul is outlining here in Romans chapter 8. If you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son, uh, it's just a great parallel. Uh, And if if you want, you can turn to Luke chapter 15. We're we're, going to start in verses 1 through 3. We're going to work our way through the chapter, but we're going to hop through because there's just no time to go through it. Uh, I've taught on this uh, before uh, a couple of years ago here, but a whole different emphasis that I want to look at here. So as we get into Luke chapter 15, Jesus is traveling. He's on his way to Jerusalem and he says that he's stopping in all the villages and towns along the way. And he's teaching, drawing great crowds. He's, he's, he's got people's attention. Uh, the attesting signs and miracles he was doing and then speaking words of life opposed to the words of death that the religious leaders were speaking. He had people that were following after him and the crowds had been growing as he went. In chapter 15, verse 1, we read, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained. (laughs) They were good at that. They said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them. Now Jesus goes into, it's actually, it's one parable. It's a parable of the lost things. It's three separate parables, but one parable. He talks about the parable of the lost sheep, the guy that, that leaves the 99, goes after that one lost sheep. And, and what's clear in, in every aspect of this parable is that when he finds it, he rejoices and there's rejoicing going on. He goes from the lost sheep to the lost coin. The woman who had lost a coin out of, it was probably her bridal headpiece, and, and which would have just totally flipped her out. And she was sweeping out the house trying to find this coin. Uh, so that's what, they, that's what they had in place of a wedding ring in those days. So she's sweeping out her house and she finds it. She's rejoicing. She's filled with joy, rejoicing. When we look here at this parable, it's important to remember What's being represented? The sinners and the tax collectors, it says that he's, that they were upset with him because he, he's dining with these people, uh, which he loved to do. <laughs> and it just set these guys' teeth on edge. They did not like it because they were very haughty and felt themselves to be spiritually superior, which they were not. Anyway, the, 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 the sinners and the tax collectors represent the younger son in the story of the prodigal son. As we look at this third of the, the, the three parables that make up one parable. This prodigal son, if you know the story, he moves from the law of sin and death to the law of the spirit of life through the story. So the sinners and tax collectors are represented by him. The religious leaders are represented by the older son. At the end of the story, he's the one that is kind of a stick in the mud. And we'll talk about that in a bit. 
but he represents the law of sin and death. He rejects his father's love. He remains in his own self-righteousness. Oh, I've done all these things. And he rejects the father. So there's two laws at work here. The law of sin and death and the law of the spirit of life. There's also two mindsets. The first mindset is what I call give me. (laughs) The younger son's mindset was centered in living for himself. We know that. He wouldn't be called the prodigal if he wasn't. In, In chapter 15, verse 12, it says, The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. He said, give me. I want it. That's mine. I'm entitled. So the mindset was just that. We're told, I'm not going to go there, but that this kid packed up all his stuff a few days later and he traveled to a far country. Why did he do that? He didn't want any accountability. He didn't want Aunt Matilda to see what he was about to do. He goes to a far country and he devours, he just consumes his inheritance on prodigal living until it's gone. It says that he began to be in want. As he's in want, it says in the text that he joined himself to a citizen of that country. He said, man, my life is a mess. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm out of money. And all these people I was partying with are kind of like gone. <laughs> and which That's a whole different deal, but that's still the same. But what he's doing, he's trying to work it out himself. He says, you know, my life's a mess. I could go back to my father. It doesn't even occur to him at that point. He hasn't gotten low enough. So he joins himself to a citizen in that country and he begins to feed pigs. And for a Jewish boy, that's really not a great vocation. <laughs> They're about as unclean as it gets in Jewish culture. Paul in chapter 7, again, I'm reminded that he's trying to work it out himself. <laughs> and it's an abysmal failure. It's in verse 17 here of Luke chapter 15. It says that when he came to himself after getting so low, trying to work it out himself, trying to figure out what he was going to do next, how is he going to live, let alone there's nobody there to have fun with any longer because his money was gone. He got to the point after living on pig food, probably carob pods. I grew up in Southern California and we used to take them and throw them at houses. <laughs> but they're, they're these little stretchy, bendy pods about that long and, and they're like really coarse. They're, they're like sticky inside and uh, and they were just, they were the perfect size to sling <laughs> as a little kid. So uh, at any rate, I can't imagine eating those. So he's eating stuff. He, he's dining on things that are just horrible to think about. It says that he came to himself. That's his bottom, by the way. You know, when people say, oh, that person hasn't hit bottom yet. Well, they could. You pick your bottom. It's not some mystical place out there. This kid got to the point where he was picking his bottom. He says, you know what? I've had it. I'm done. (laughs) He came to himself. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? And I perish. I'm dying here with hunger. I'll arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired slaves, servants. The second mindset. The first mindset is give me. The second mindset is make me a slave. Things have changed in this young man's life. He's gone from living for himself and seeing that that didn't work out too well to now seeing that, you know, I've squandered it. Man, I have just messed up way beyond anything that I could have possibly done. 
I need to go back home. I need to go to my father's house because even the people that work for him are doing a way better than me. Two mindsets. Give me. And then going to make me a slave. Two spirits here. The, the spirit of slavery, the, son, the spirit of sonship. Because returning, the son wanted, he wanted only to be a slave, but his father had other plans. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. And when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and he kissed him. I read, every time I read this, I think about for his father to see him, how often would he go to the doorway or to the window and look down the road, longing for his son? Folks, that's God's heart for you and for me. He longs for us. When we're out there, he longs for us to turn, to find our bottom, to go from give me to make me a slave. It's better to be that in your house than to be out here banging along on my own, trying to make sense of my own life. This is so parallels what Paul is laying out for us in Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 8. Verse 20, it says, he arose, went to his father, and he was still a great way off. His father saw him, had compassion, ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I would submit to you, which of us is in our own stuff? The father in this story, specifically, he doesn't honor the son's request to be a slave. He doesn't even let him get to the point of finishing his statement. He, he gets as far as, I'm not worthy to be your son. Instead, the father restores this son to full status as a son. He says, get the fatted calf. <laughs> get, that, get that one calf we've been saving for a special occasion. Bring it here and, and grab the robe and the, fam- the signet ring, the family ring, the one that you'll only wear if you're part of this family. Get the sandals. I want to welcome this home, this son home, and we're going to have a party because my son was lost. Now he's found. My son was dead, and now he lives. Same things Paul is talking about here, guys. All of this is a demonstration of the grace of God because none of us is worthy to come to our father's house on our own. But he not only forgives us for our sins, he not only fills us with his Holy Spirit, he calls us son. He calls us daughter. And by the way, he says, I want you to call me dad. We'll get to that. It's worth noting that the older brother in this parable remains stuck in his own righteousness. He says, all these years, I have never transgressed your command at any time. And I would submit to you one word. Well, it's hyphenated, hogwash. <laughs> he's, he's, he's like the rich young ruler, the, the guy that said, you know, I've kept all the commands from my birth up. But what else do I need to do to be saved, Jesus? And Jesus said, well, if you're going to base it on your commands, I'll give you one more. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And the guy went away sad because it was based in self-righteousness, not in the gift of the grace of God. The father's heart is expressed. The last verse we'll look at here in Luke 15, in verse 32, he tells the older brother, he says, it was, it was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. Folks, as we look at this verse in Romans, I would submit to you, this is Abba, Father. The spirit within us cries out, Abba, Father, Papa, intimate term. 
loving term. Yeah, the God that rides the heavens to your help says, call me father. That's the nature of the relationship I want to have with you. You know, Jesus was scandalous in his manner of prayer. He would look upwards towards heaven with his eyes open and he'd say, Papa? (laughs) Nobody ever did that before he did. Now, the word Abba, remember, now the Greek word for father is it's it's P-A-T-E-R, pater, or pater. I don't know how to pronounce it. But there's a different Greek word. But the, the, the word that was used here, the Aramaic, which was the Greek was the written word. The Aramaic was the spoken word in the first century. The, the, the spoken word for father is Abba. It still is in Israel, by the way. If uh, you see somebody and they're talking about their father, they're talking about their Abba. And uh, it's, it's, that's a word that has, it, when Hebrew was restored and all of that, there are the same underpinnings of the language. I don't want to get into all that. But the point is, nobody ever did this. Nobody ever looked at and addressed God as father. Yeah, he had addressed himself as father in several places in the Old Testament. But Jesus promotes this term, the name of God, to a much greater degree. He puts a lot more weight on it than anyone ever had. By the way, it doesn't say, but I can only assume that the religious leaders were scandalized by that as well. Didn't take much. So Jesus considered God his own father and the father of his disciples because he told him, he said, when you pray, how do you pray? Father, Papa. God continues to be called father throughout the New Testament uh, as the father of Jesus and now the father of those who follow Jesus. That's why often when we pray, it's just sort of automatic that I begin prayers with father. Uh, Not just intimacy, but deep respect. I struggled with that as a young Christian, by the way. I grew up in a, in a household where my stepfather was, the guy was a wreck and, and he was very abusive and, and you know, it's just the. And when I first became a Christian, I thought, Father, God, I don't like what that represents in my life. But then, and then, I, but then I became, and I began to realize as I was raising my own children, and raising them as much as I was able in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This is what you mean. It's a love relationship. It's a safe relationship. I provide a covering for my family. God provides a covering for me. And in that, in the way that God has designed fatherhood, it took on a whole different meaning. And I love, unashamedly, love my father. Abba appears three times in just a couple of statistics here in the New Testament. In Mark 14, he's addressed as Abba by Jesus. In Romans 8, and then in Galatians chapter 4, Paul uses the same uh, acclamation. He says, the spirit within us cries out, Abba, Father. Intimate term. Verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness that our, to, with our spirit that we are children of God. So now dominated by the nature of spirit, God communicates to us. He communes with us through the agency of the spirit, bearing witness to our spirit. We don't know how this happens. We, you know, it's a mystery. How does the Holy Spirit bear witness to my spirit? I don't know how it happens, but I do know that it does happen. I do know that God does want to speak with us. We look at the written word of God, the logos, but we also look at the spoken word of God, the rhema. Jesus used both. 
You go into John 17 in, in the great high priestly prayer and in other places, he would talk about the word of God in both. One thing to know is that he will never contradict himself. So if somebody comes up to me and they say, well, God told me, God spoke to me in such and so. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to weigh it against the word of God. That doesn't necessarily mean that that was something that God told them, but I'm going to dismiss it right away. The other is if the Holy Spirit is bearing witness with my spirit about what that person is saying, well, then there's grounds for us to talk. Um, I guess my point in that is that God generally doesn't need our help. If he wants to speak to somebody, he will. And yeah, there are times where we exert. There are times where we come alongside. There are times where God puts it on our hearts to deal with areas. But that, not until there's been a lot of prayer, folks. Be sure that if God has allowed you to see something in someone else, that, that you're not automatically thinking that that's, I'm called to be the guy that goes and fixes that person. That may be, but be careful. Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, verse 27, he says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. What he's talking about there is what Paul is talking about here. God speaks. We hear his voice. And, and we do, we follow him. In verse 17, we read, he says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and join heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. Have you ever thought about this, folks? You're, we're not only heirs, but we're joint heirs with Christ. What he's saying here is, is it's like, okay, if my family, if say my parents have a will and, and they have several children, and he's saying, and those children are joint heirs. They're equally entitled to what the estate has. He says, we're joint heirs with Christ. That, that boggles my mind. I, I, I try to wrap my mind around that. You mean everything that Jesus gets in the deal, I get? Yeah, that's what he means. Yeah, we don't get to share, you know, <laughs> the incommunicable attributes, the omnis. You know, we're not going to be omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent and all that. No, that's, that's, not, that's not the point. But we do share his holiness. We do share. He's called the firstborn of the resurrection for a reason. We follow. We have the same entitlement to being raised from the dead as he did. Why? Because it's his righteousness resting on our lives. We have the same position as a son of the father that he does. That's what Paul's point is here. Join heirs. What he's saying here, you know, we, we now experience the, the blessings of sonship. We will experience the blessings of the inheritance that we have. And, there's, and we'll talk about that more. Those are the things that await us as joint heirs with Jesus. Interesting point I want to close with. He ties blessings with suffering. I'll read it again. Verse 17. And if children, then heirs, joint heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. There are things that appear paradoxical in God's word and they're not. And uh, I'm going to leave that for next week. In the advertising business, I've spent a lot of years in the advertising business. We call that a teaser. I'm, it's not a teaser, really. We're just out of time. <laughs> and in order to develop that, uh, we're going to go into it because he goes into a pretty lengthy discussion on what it is to suffer as a child of God. 
All of us do. All of us will. Why does he tie that here? We'll look at it next week. Let's pray. Father, there's just so much here. I just feel, Lord, on these things that just scratch on the surface of your word, just barely getting into it, and then our time's up. Uh, Lord, I know other people appreciate that. I'm not going to preach all day, but I feel like I could. So just pray, Father, that as we take in these things that you, by your spirit, are driving into our hearts, that you have given us ears to hear, that you have given us eyes to see, that you are giving us hearts that understand that we would apply these things to our lives. We know that's your desire. That's our desire. So work in us, we pray. Give us the mind of Christ. Open your scripture to us. Open our hearts to your Holy Spirit. Lord, give us relief from areas perhaps we're struggling in. We know that you're not only, your spirit is not only the helper, He's also the comforter. So I pray that for, for each heart here this morning that might be hurting or dented up or bruised. Pray that you would have your way with us. We give ourselves afresh to you. In Jesus' name.